It's good seeing you guys today. This is awesome. Um, Let's pray real quick and then we'll dive in. Father God, the greatest need of the hour right now is for our eyes to be open. For the eyes of our hearts to behold who you are in the scriptures, Father, for us to receive and embrace this in faith. And Father, so I'm asking for a powerful working of your Holy Spirit in the deepest parts of who we are, that you would come both in this room and in the kids' ministry, <clears throat> and you would open our eyes so that we would see the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel and that we would see it uh, in such a way that it compels us to be different kind of people uh, from this day forward, Father, that we would, we would see and embrace Christ as our all-satisfying treasure and delight in him and anchor our lives in who he is. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, please turn to Colossians 1. <clears throat> this is the second Sunday for Risen Hope, and uh, everyone is still alive, as far as I can tell, which means we're doing something right by God's grace. Um, it's good to be with you today. I am, I'm, so grace, great, I'm so grateful for God's mercy in giving us this facility and uh, blessing us with a place that we can gather and, and worship, and it's just a remarkable place to do this, like with the windows and being able to see outside on a day like this is a glorious thing, so praise be to God for that. Uh, and I'm thankful for what God's going to say today. So Colossians 1, we're going to read 1 through 5 again, and then we're going to key in on uh, verse 3 a little bit. <laughs> so Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So let's start with some background first. Uh, since some of you guys were here, some of you guys uh, weren't. For the folks who weren't here, this will catch you up a little bit for the folks who were uh, by way of reminder, uh, in case you've forgotten. Last week, we talked about the first two verses. Um, and we talked about how the Apostle Paul is an apostle by the will of God, that God decided that. That was God's decision, and God sent him. And he is communicating in this letter to the church at Colossae. And we also talked about the fact that in his communication, in this letter and other letters, he begins them with a greeting, a salutation, that is, grace to you and peace from God our Father which we tend to overlook because it's in all of his letters, but the profound reality of what he's saying there to sinners like me and you is amazing if it takes hold of our hearts. And um, today we're just going to explore one sentence in these five verses, verse 3. Um, but my hope and my prayer is that this one sentence will not only open up this letter for us in a really profound way, um, but it will open up what it means at the very center to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that verse 3 is this. It says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Paul is saying we, that is him and his crew, his people, they thank God when they're praying for the Colossian church. So part of the backdrop for this line is that a man named Epaphras, we mentioned him last week, we'll see more of him in verse 7. 
He's a native to the town or city of Colossae. And he's come to Paul to give a report of this church that's in his town. Now, he is apparently the one, according to these verses we're going to get to in a, in a little bit, that, um, that started this church. He's the one who shared the gospel with them, and now there's a pocket of believers. And Paul is writing this letter to these believers, and in a very real way, he's writing this letter to us, believers 2,000 years later. Now, Epaphras loves these people. He loves this Colossian church, and he knows that they are the real thing. They are real, legit Christians. Um, and it even says in verse 8 that Epaphras has made known his, their love to Paul in the Spirit. So somehow when Epaphras comes to Paul in his communication with Paul about these Christian believers in a very real way, Paul is encountering the love of saints hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And he's doing that in the, spirit of, uh, in the Spirit of God. Now, that's an amazing thing. That love for people who are in Christ transcends space and time. Thousands of miles away, um, we can be in a relationship, a family relationship in God's, God's family with people who are in Christ, and we've never met them, we've never seen them, um, just like Paul with these Colossian believers. He's never seen these people. Now, part of the reason Paul knows that these guys are legit are because of three specific qualities that he calls out in these first five verses. <laughs> Paul mentions them here. Apparently, Epaphras must have communicated this to him. Here, here they are. These are the three. Faith in Christ Jesus, love for all the saints, and those are because a hope that's laid up for them in heaven. We'll go through these, each, each of these, we're going to spend a lot of time on faith today, but we'll go through each of these um, really briefly. So faith in Christ Jesus. These people believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They believe in him and they have staked their lives on this. And this is where we're going to camp out today. But the second one is love for all the saints. And so it's this idea that there is a genuine, supernatural, sincere love that Colossian believers have for other believers. And Paul describes this later on in this letter as God knitting together their hearts. Now we can read over that line very quickly and not see the profound reality of what that is. The heart is the deepest wellspring of emotions in the human being. And Paul's saying what God does to believers is he grafts those together so that you're like one person. Um, which is profound. So these two things, faith in Christ and love for all the saints, happen because of a hope laid up for them in heaven. That this is a hope. So it's something that they long for, something that they're looking toward. And what Paul is saying is that there is a kind of hope that exists in reality that apparently is capable of taking hold of the human heart and yielding faith in Christ and love for other believers. Now this act of hoping, <coughs> or this isn't an act of hoping, like what it says here is it's a hope laid up for them in heaven. So what, they're refer what Paul's referring to here, apart from the act of hoping, is, is a thing that the object of their hope, the thing that they are treasuring, the thing that they're looking toward. It's so powerful, so gripping, that it causes them to believe in Jesus Christ, a man whom they've never seen before, likely. And it causes them to love other people who believe in him, which is 
absurd if you think about it, but this is actually what happens to a Christian. Um, I want to go back to the uh, phrase at the beginning of this letter um, that we just talked about. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Now, this thankfulness that Paul shows here at the beginning of the letter is not uncommon. If you read his letters, you know that he does this often. He does it in Romans. He does it in Philippians. He tells the believers how he prays for them. And he tells them, listen, I thank God for your community. Your community is a blessing. And I thank God for what he's done in you. And that's what I want to focus on our, on our time together today. Um, I want to take a look at why and what God is thanking um, them for, or God for, in the Colossian church. He says, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus... Now, the word sense isn't in the original Greek. The original Greek is actually uh, like, we give thanks to God having heard of your faith. But the idea is there. In English, it helps us understand and connect the two. Um, Their faith is the reason and the basis and the foundation of Paul's thankfulness at the start of this letter. That's amazing. Um, He is thankful to God that they're believers that they believe, that they heard the gospel and they're compelled to trust Christ Jesus. Now, Epaphras, like I said, brought them the gospel and these people, the Colossians, responded by embracing Christ. And so, reflecting on this event, as Paul starts out this letter, he says, this is cause for thanking God, that these people exist. He is grateful to God uh, because he sees that God is responsible for what happened to the Colossians. So let's ask a few questions. And so when you get to a text where you're trying to figure out and, and find out what it means and wrestle with it a little bit, you ask questions. You ask questions of the Bible and you say, what does this mean? How, how are you trying to say this? Um, what does he mean by faith in Christ? Let's start at a, at a very base level. What is he saying about faith in Christ? Um, and I think in digging in a little bit deeper, because there's some sur- superficial answers we could give to that, digging in a little deeper, we're going to see something here that is critical to our understanding of who God is. We're going to see something that is critical to our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see something that is amazing because it is a remarkable thing that any of us are believers. Truly remarkable. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, for example, it says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What he's saying here is, No one, no human being can say that Jesus Christ is Lord and mean it and really believe it unless they say it by the power of the Holy Spirit. This idea that the Holy Spirit is the root of their confession in Christ. That's a big deal because it kind of says, like, if God could have done it a different way, he might have. God dwells in us for us to believe in Jesus Christ. That's powerful. So let's start with the basics. What is faith? Um, We could probably answer this by saying something simple like this. Faith is a belief in something, in anything. For example, and I'm not saying this because I want it to happen. If I were to say, uh, I believe it's going to rain today. um, That's like saying, I have faith, confidence that it's going to rain today. In fact, faith in the Latin is the word fide, which is where we get the word confidence, with faith. Con fide. Um, and uh, having confidence that it will rain or having faith that it will rain is uh, effectively like saying I have faith in X, Y, Z or whatever it might be. It's, it's like saying 
Um, I want this to be true, and I, it's, or I, actually rather, it's not like saying that. It's like saying, um, it will rain today because I have this evidence before me, or I believe it's going to happen because of this evidence. Now, here's the catch. We oftentimes disassociate faith from a kind of knowing and certainty. So the modern mind tends to put faith in a category of um, blind hope in an idea that is generally based on little or no evidence. Like, I really want this to be true, and therefore, I'll believe it. But here's the deal. The Bible never describes faith like that. Not ever. In fact, the Bible uses very strong language to describe faith and makes it out to be a kind of assurance, a kind of conviction that we have um, in a reality. For example, Paul in Philippians 3 says, I count everything as loss next to the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So for Paul, faith for him is knowing. Hebrews 11.1 1 actually says that uh, the biblical definition of faith is faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith, it, it, the author of Hebrews uses two words to describe faith. He uses the word assurance and he uses the word conviction. <laughs> now it's certainly a conviction in something we can't see, an assurance in something we can't see. That's that's clearly uh, the case based on this verse, but that doesn't mean we can't know it. Let me give you an example. Uh, my wife is serving in kids' ministry, but pretend that she's here for a moment. Um, my love for my wife is not visible. You cannot see my love, my affection, my desire, my passion for her streaming from me to her. You can see the effects of it for sure, hopefully, um, but you can't see my love streaming towards her but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. In fact, I know it's real, and I know it's real at such a level that I would discount things that I can see before I would discount that. That's how profound and real my love for, is for her. So there is a way in which, in reality, you can know something that you can't see. It's true. We all know this. There's stuff that we just know, we're confident about, we're certain of, that we just can't see. Um, so faith, according to Hebrews 11, is like this. You can't see the object of faith, Christ, but that doesn't make it an unwarranted belief uh, to know or to believe in him. Um, it might be incredibly warranted through a great many ways. Paul got struck down on his way to Damascus, and so he had a lot of evidence in his mind and in his heart that this is reality. Um, now, so before we leave the definition of faith and press on to ask why God might... Uh, why Paul would thank God for this. Um, it's important to look at two things. First, the author of Hebrews is correct in saying this. If he is correct, um, that biblical faith is an assurance of something hoped for, then it means that faith isn't just a belief in an intellectual proposition or an idea. That biblical faith is something more than that. That there is at the root of faith a kind of affection and desire and longing um, that occurs that's wrapped up in the biblical definition of faith. Um, because the object of our faith is our hope. And that's significant if you think about it. Um, if, <clears throat> if faith is, is just understanding a fact, that's one thing. Anyone can believe but if faith is believing and knowing something to be true that is hoped for, that involves our hearts. That involves our desires. 
That involves our longings and our passions. Now that's the first thing. So faith isn't just a belief in a proposition or an intellectual fact. Faith is a, an embracing of it, a longing and a desiring of it as it being what it says it is. Secondly, and this is huge, um, and, and <laughs> some of you may be already putting this together. So far in our definition of faith, we have not described a single action of a person. No one's acted or done an action yet. Faith is an assurance, but assurance is not an action. It's the wellspring of actions. And faith is a conviction, but conviction isn't an action. Now, both of these are rooted in experiential reality. We know these. You guys have been assured of stuff. You guys have been, had convictions about stuff. Um, but they aren't actions that we produce. They're generated by evidence, by this, by that, and they well up within us, and then from them, we respond with actions. <laughs> um, so uh, we, can, we can see um, that um, actions can come from faith, but, but faith itself isn't being described as an action at all. Um, for example, Jesus tells Peter, come out to me. You guys know this story. Come out to me on the water. Jesus is walking on the water. Peter's like, I want to do that. Um, Peter climbs out of the boat, and he does it, and he's walking on water, and then what happens? He looks away from Jesus, and he starts to sink when he takes his eyes off Christ. He didn't decide his faith in that moment. He, he didn't decide his faith. He decided to act on an assurance and conviction that Jesus Christ could hold him above the water if he took a step. <laughs> um, but here's the rub, and you guys are already probably picking this out, uh, and it bothers me. It should bother everyone to some degree. Jesus commands that everyone believe in him to be saved. In fact, we know from Hebrews 11.6 that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not just improbable or unlikely, it's not going to happen without faith. Romans 14.23 actually gets even more uh, indicting. It says, whatever does not proceed from faith, whatever does not come from the assurance and conviction of Jesus Christ, being who he says he, says he is, is sin. That's intense, Paul. <laughs> Are you sure about that? Because uh, uh, I know a lot of people who do a lot of really good things. They do philanthropic things. They build schools like this facility, and they don't believe in Jesus Christ. They don't do that. What he's saying is, yeah, that's sin, and here's why. Everything we do as human beings is reliant on God. Every single molecule is dependent on God. And when we do good things, even helpful, loving things, from a place of, one, of unbelief, what we're effectively saying in our actions very loudly is, I don't need you. I don't need you to do this. I can do this on my own. So faith in the Bible is crucial. It's so important. It is eternally important. And that's why we're spending so much time on it today. So back to our text. This faith is what the Colossian church has in Jesus Christ. And Paul is thanking God for it. He says he's always thanking God for it. So this concept of faith and assurance in the hope of the gospel is actually sprinkled throughout 
all the Colossian letter, and we're going to get to different parts of it. But what I want to do is I want to look at Colossians 2.11 very briefly, um, because I think in this passage here, we see a miracle, and faith is, is a huge part of it. This is a complex text, um, and I'm not going to be able to tackle all of it, um, but I want you to take a look at this and follow the train of thought that Paul has in Colossians uh, 2.11. It says this, In him, that is in Christ Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made with, without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That's super complex, and it would take us probably five sermons when we get to that text in a year or whenever we get there. Uh, but, um, but here's the deal. Uh, in this text, um, so for, first off, circumcision in this text is not a physical activity like it was in the Old Testament to sort of uh, identify a people group circumcision here is from here is clear it was made without hands which means it is entirely supernatural and spiritual by nature and Paul refers to this circumcision as the circumcision of Christ and he describes how it works he says that this is how someone who is spiritually dead is made spiritually alive it says you were raised with him that is with Christ Jesus through faith in the powerful working of God. So faith here means, or so faith here is the means or the instrument of God by which he powerfully awakens and raises us up with Christ Jesus. Later on, a few verses after this section, <clears throat> Paul says that um, God is making us alive together with him. Paul is saying that at the center of our transition from being a non-Christian to being a Christian or from being oblivious and ignorant to the gospel to adoring Jesus Christ as our treasure, that that massive paradigm shift happens by the instrumentation of faith. We literally change from death to life. And this is God's doing in the, in, the, in the instrument of faith. So Ephesians 2 actually um, paints probably the most vivid picture of this in the entire Bible. Um, there's a few other contestants, but this is probably the most vivid uh, picture. Um, and uh, I would just say that uh, let's follow the, the flow of Paul's thoughts. This is 10 verses, um, but this is all, all the verses, I was trying to figure out what I could cut from this. And I'm like, no, nah, that's... It's too critical for us to cut, so I'm going to go through all of them, and I'm going to take our time and try to unpack as we go. Um, listen to the way that Paul describes the state of human beings prior to God making them alive. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, so everyone, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is not very optimistic. 
Let's just stop here for a second. This is not an optimistic situation. This is not a good situation for anyone to find themselves in. And Paul is saying in this text that this is how we are prior to encountering the living Christ. And um, it's, it should, it doesn't probably, for a lot of us, for me, it doesn't always do this, have a huge impact that he would spend all of these words on describing our former state. That's an amazing thing. But then, he doesn't leave us there, praise God. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. Through faith. And then he doesn't choose to leave it there and just let it sit. He says, and this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. According to this, we begin life dead. Now, don't blame Paul for this language. He didn't actually, this is, he's not the creator of this language. He actually borrowed it from Jesus. Uh, Jesus, remember when he said in Matthew 8, 22, uh, follow me, let the dead bury the dead. Remember that? According to Jesus, life without him is not really life. It isn't at all. Um, so we begin life in this state. And Paul says, um, well, we begin life in this state, but then Paul says, he interjects and he says, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love that he has for us, intervenes. He breaks into our futility and he takes us as his own and he breathes life into us. Now, he doesn't need to do this. He is not consigned to do this at all. There's no need in God externally from him. The only factors that govern his actions toward us in this moment are mercy and love. And they well up from within himself. And then, so Paul says, after this, he says, just so you know, Ephesian church, this is not your doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of any work that you could do. So that, why? No one would boast. He says, you want to know who the culprit is who made you alive? It's really simple. God did that. And according to verse 9, God saved us in such a way that no one would boast. That's why he uses the words, so that there. Meaning Paul is telling us that God has a motive in doing things the way he does things. He's not just simply saving sinners here. He's doing it in such a way that it communicates something powerful and wild about who he is. He does it so that no one would boast. Now this phrase, no one will boast, shows up 
in a variety of different places throughout the Bible. Um, but one place in particular that I think will help us understand what he's after here is 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul is addressing almost the same issue. Not quite, but almost the same issue. Um, and he goes further in saying, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. <laughs> Paul wants us to know that although God's design in salvation is to mercifully save sinners and to set us free from everything that would try to destroy us in our lives, that he is also doing something else. He is communicating very loudly something about himself that no human being should ever brag or boast in the presence of God, especially when it comes to how by grace, through faith, they were rescued. Paul's saying man cannot bring anything to the table that would contribute to this. And then he ends the passage by saying, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So we are called to boast. Christians are boasters. We are all boasters. We just don't boast in us. We boast in God. And we're called to boast in God for the glory that is from salvation. He should be boasted in and he should be thanked, which brings us back to what Paul is doing in the beginning of the Colossian letter. He is thanking God, boasting in God for their faith in Christ, the posture of their hearts to love Jesus and to love other believers isn't something that they manufactured. They didn't just figure it out. It happened by the work of God. God is the ultimate source of faith. It is a gift from God according to Ephesians 2 and throughout the entire council of scripture. And for some reason, for some crazy reason, Paul thinks that it's important for them to know this, that it's critical that they know, even at the beginning of the letter, that this happened because of God. Um, and uh, <clears throat> we should ask why does Paul think it's important for us to know this? Uh, why is it important for the Colossian church to know and to embrace um, this? And I would hold out before you, this is why. And I think the rest of the letter will commend this same reality over and over again. God is very much in the business of taking our eyes off of ourselves and putting them on him. He is all about that. And much of this letter is that. He is saying through Paul, take your eyes off of yourselves and put them on Christ. He is passionate, Paul is passionate for them to see that God is not only the source of these things, but he is the focus of their salvation. God didn't just help you be saved, Colossians. He didn't just help, he didn't show up and offer some assistance. God straight up saved you. Now the biggest question we can have in response to this in the scripture is how can faith as a gift from God really and truly be good news? for us and for people who do not believe. How can this be good news? And I've got three reasons and then we'll close in, in prayer and communion. Reason number one, that faith being a gift from God is good news. It means that God's work of saving sinners is invincible and unstoppable. <laughs> we read in last week, uh, that uh, in 1 Timothy, was it uh, 1, 12 through 17, we read Paul describing himself as the chief of sinners, the foremost sinner. 
But then at the end of that text, he says this. He says, but I received mercy. Now, I want you to think about who Paul was. Breathing out murders against the church, hated Christ Jesus, wanted Christians to die. You don't get much worse than that. This is not Paul's estimation of who he was. He calls himself an insolent opponent. He calls himself um, a blasphemer. This is God's estimation of who Paul was. And he says, but I received mercy for this reason. This is why I got saved. That in me, as the foremost, the worst sinner in the world, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So think about what he's saying here. Paul says, the reason that the worst sinner in the world was saved was to prove that to all who would believe in Jesus, that God can save anyone. No one is beyond the reach of God. Not a single soul in the universe is beyond God's reach. God can save us. God can save our families. God can save our friends. God can save anyone. No one is too far gone. He is mighty to save, and not a single soul is beyond his reach, period. So number one is it means that God's work of saving sinners is unstoppable. Number two, a reason for faith being a gift as good, is good news. <laughs> it means that our salvation isn't based on the strength we can muster, but rather the object of our faith. So the faith that we muster, it's not based on that. It is based on the strength of the object of our faith, Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ on the cross paid for everything needed to bring us home to him. Every single ounce needed, including our ability to obey the command of Christ, believe in me, to be saved. Hebrews 10 uh, 21 through 22 says, Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. <laughs> the basis of our salvation is not the quality of our faith. And, and if you're like me, you know some days you need to hear that because my faith isn't doing great. The basis of our salvation is not the quality of our faith, but it is the quality of our priest. Jesus, who paid for our forgiveness with his own blood. What saves us isn't how good we are at believing. What saves us is how good the one we believe in is. So I, I would ask this week that you just rest in that reality. No matter what you're going through, no matter what difficulty you're struggling with, the strength of our Savior is so great that it, our faith will wane and wax and do all the sorts of things that you would expect it to do in a world like this, we need to hold fast to who he is because he's the one who provides us the strength to believe. Um, number three, and if the band wants to come back up, you guys can, and then we'll pray after this. Um, if our faith is from God and not our own doing, what that means very clearly is that our destiny is in his hands. And let me tell you people, he is faithful. He will sustain us to the end by holding our faith intact. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9. Paul says, Jesus will sustain you to the end. That's pretty clear, right? I'm not confused about that. 
Jesus will sustain, it says he in the original text, but it's talking about Jesus. <laughs> Jesus will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. You know what's not in this text? Us contributing anything. And I think what we're, we're called to do when we look at a text like this is to wrap our arms around it and say, this is true. This is true. This will be true of me every single day of my life. God is saying, or Jesus, Paul is saying that God called you and therefore he will sustain you. He will never fail. He will never give up on you. If the faith that we had was based on our own ability, think about how fickle we are how much we change our opinions about things. If it was based on our own affections that shift every single day, we would have no right to believe that this was true. This would be a false statement. But it's not. If God is the one who provided faith as a gift, then he will most certainly secure our future with him. He has us in his hands and we aren't going anywhere. Paul is telling the Colossian church and us, one thing in these three points. He's saying, when I thank God for the faith that you have, I want you to know that every single day, believers are called to take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on Jesus. Hebrews 12 says it the best. Look to Jesus, the founder or author and perfecter of our faith. That's what it means to believe not looking to ourselves, not looking inside us for anything that could commend us to God, but locking our eyes on Christ Jesus. Remember that passage I told you about with Peter earlier? Um, he's looking at Jesus, he walks out on the water, and then what happens? He starts to sink, he starts to fall into the water, um, he looks at the water, <laughs> and really what he's doing here, to be perfectly honest, is he's, it's not just looking at the water, he's looking at the inside of himself and saying, I can't do this. I can't do this. And you know what Jesus is saying to him? Yeah, you can't. You can't. Look at me, Peter. Look at who I am. Every day, we are called to wake up and to be ferocious about getting our mind and our heart off of ourselves and fixing our eyes on our champion, the author of our faith, Christ Jesus. I'm going to pray, and then we'll have communion here in a second. Communion, the way communion is designed by God, is that it is a visible reminder for those who believe of what it costs to secure our believing. And so if you believe, I want you to remember that Christ's body was broken for you, his blood was shed for you, and that is what it cost so that we can say with Paul, praise God, I'm thankful that I have faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, you are the greatest reality in the universe. There is nothing more beautiful, more wonderful, more powerful than you. And uh, my hope and prayer right now in this moment is that your spirit would powerfully work in our hearts and work in the relationships that are outside this building and work in our streets and work in our neighborhoods, Father, so that the, the realities of this text today would penetrate my soul and their souls in such a way that other people come to trust you and love you and appreciate you as you ought to be appreciated. Father, I pray that you would help us every single day of our lives to take our eyes. We wake up in the morning and our eyes are fixed on what we want, what we desire, what we think is right, and to put them on Christ Jesus by reading his word, 
by embracing him in scripture, by pleading with him in prayer, and by coming to him and saying, God, whatever happens today, I want my eyes to be locked with yours. I want my, my ears to be to your chest, to hear your heartbeat for the people that you put me around sovereignly. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.